Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a lecturer and a broadcaster, and I'm your chief investigator of images. Every week I'm joined by a fabulous guest to explore one image in detail. But today I have the feeling that we are going to be branching wide. We are going pan... We're going across the world, aren't we? We're, I'm joined by Peter Frankopan. He is the uh, senior research lecturer, a historian based at Worcester College in Oxford, and best known, I think, for being the author of a book that I think everybody knows now. It's become iconic. It's The Silk Roads. It's done incredibly well. It's been number one for something like nine months in the non-fiction chart, hasn't it, Peter? Well, I think it's... I think, I'm too modest to be able to tell oh, you, but I, I, do, I do know, yeah. It's, it's been, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing, actually, as a historian uh, to write a book that is really visible because that wasn't what I was either expecting to do or trying to do. So, um, but yes, I know we, we sometimes... Sometimes books that are... Can, can be sort of over visible, but I mean, it's amazing that that people stop me in the street in Sydney, in Pakistan, in China, and uh, the only place I don't get stopped in the street to say "Well done" or "Slam on the back" is here in Oxford. <laughs> they would never do that in Oxford. Well, we're very, we're, we're, <laughs> we're very we're, modest. We're very modest, exactly about about each other's achievements. But yeah, it's been it's been a great, been a real roller coaster since it came out yeah. nearly two years ago now. And you've been travelling non-stop, and and I find this fascinating because obviously you opened the book. Uh, we we were talking about this idea of of being yourself in a in a book putting yourself into the narrative and you do that really clearly in silk roads you say right at the very beginning when i was a child i had a map of the world next to my bed and was that that was it for you that was the formative moment where it all clicked together well i think there are two things i think as a historian i think you you don't need to insert yourself into the text and so on although you know you 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 learn as a historian always to ask about the author when you're reading other people's works but i think when you're trying to write a big sweeping uh, you know, challenge to how narrow our blinkered views are of the past, and also to challenge some of those ideas that we take for granted. You do need to explain where that motivation comes from and where the inspiration comes from. So I start my book, it's the only bit that I insert myself in, right at the beginning, saying that I remember as a young boy having a map on my wall in my bedroom. And in fact, when you when you when when we spoke and you asked me to think of a single image, which is a nightmare question to do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I was hoping you'd say come back as a re- recurring guest and I could run through several hundred of week after week can. after week. Of course you do hundreds of these. <laughs> but, you know, I think that we don't... I mean, funnily enough, when, when you think about art around us and, and when you ask all your other guests, they always think of a piece of visual art, you know, something in a painting or a picture. And quite often the things that have the most artistic 
impact on us are things that we don't even think of as art. You know, coins. You know, they're, they're things you take out or banknotes you take them out of your pocket every single day, and it doesn't cross your mind to think about why a five pound note is that color, or who, who what, what you know, who designs and what what do you say? What does a twenty pound note? What does it say? What does a coin mm-hmm. say? And some of the greatest artists in our past have been people who've depicted geography for a reason and map makers and um you know that sort of generic map of the world that that we're mostly familiar with i I had one of those on my bedside um on my bedside wall and being i suppose slightly geeky i i loved i mean lots of things about that map i still i remember uh, and i still love today when i fly and i just just flew back into uh, to London uh, 24 hours ago and you know when I look at the map of airline routes and so on I'm absolutely transfixed yeah. and I'm transfixed by mountain ranges particularly mountain ranges in other people's languages and rivers and capital cities always in in capital letters and this map that I had on my bedside wall when I was bedroom wall when I was small um, it really struck me even as a little boy that uh, I only ever learnt about things that were to do with Western Europe I only ever learnt about things that involved Britain and maybe France, maybe Germany, maybe Italy, but nothing really beyond. And certainly if you did have some sort of waft of another world beyond Western Europe, it was only in con- con- context and in connection mm. with what we already knew. And you'd sort of, it would pop up and then disappear, you know. You, and um, that that seemed to me, even growing up, that there was a different way of wanting to look at the world around us, a different way of wanting to have greater texture, greater depth. And maps are very, very good ways of reorienting where our centre of retention is, and um, you know, so so I've chosen my 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 image today. My work of art is a map, mm. and and we're putting it in a bit of uh, context here because, on the one hand, we've got the Hereford map of Mundi up in front of us, and then we've got this map of Constantinople that's in one of your very dusty old books yes. <laughs> from your shelf. Um, why have you chosen this map? Well, I went after, as, a, as an undergraduate, I, I, in my last year, I took a paper that looked at the Byzantine Empire. And, you know, all roads, in fact, they, they sort of, in a funny way, I suppose they do lead to Rome. They led me to New Rome, uh, which is the name given to the refounded city of Byzantium, which is in, in the fourth century, the Emperor Constantine um, built a massive city that was called New Rome and was called by its inhabitants New Rome, um, that's now known as Istanbul. And it's, it's the meeting point of Asia and Europe. And it was somewhere that I spent my my a great deal. I spent a great deal of time there, of course. But it's the the centre, the capital city of the Byzantine Empire for for a thousand years, and it's a city that that uh, I love because it draws in influences and information from literally all over the world. You find, you know, been through Scandinavian sources and sources from Iceland, talking about visitors in the 11th century coming to Constantinople. Yeah, lots of cool Viking warriors going fighting. Cool Viking warriors. <laughs> And some of them actually, it's not, not just it's not just the fighting. Actually, that what they do, they, they they when they come back home to Iceland, they bring new fashions with them. They bring new objects. They bring they, they bring wonderment. They they expand other people's horizons too. Viking graves are incredible for that. I remember an exhibition in in uh, Edinburgh where one Viking grave, you know, had a, had a Buddha in it. It had um, mm-hmm. coins from Constantinople, and the idea that the world was was actually we tend to think of the past as a, a very parochial, localized existence. Yeah. But, but it's not. It's cosmopolitan. I think that's what your your book yeah, talks it, about. Yeah, and in fact, Constantinople is a meeting point not just for Iceland. You know, we throw in. Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. It's the sort of plays a central role in the origins of what becomes Russia. 
uh, and Ukraine. Uh, it is connected to the great Islamic empire, the world of Damascus and Baghdad and Central Asia. And it's connected through to uh, Imperial China, you know, mm. one and a half thousand years ago. Uh, uh, information, news, goods, intelligence reports were being sent and pinged the same way that they do today. The only difference was that we, you know, those days you didn't have Twitter and you didn't have instant messaging, but, you know, but still people were interested in other parts of the world and not just as curios. They were interested in alliances. They were interested in cultural achievements and borrowings. They were interested in what people thought about things. And in a way, there's no difference between our world of today and a thousand or one and a half or 2000 years ago apart from the speed of connectivity. And I think we, 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 we sometimes forget that we always think we're living in a, in a modern age and that this is all new. And we forget that there's a huge pool of information, of evidence, of, of interesting and clever people. If you ask my opinion, people writing in my field a thousand years ago were much, much cleverer than mm-hmm. I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were better read. They were, they were much better as writers. You know, they were able to weave in all sorts of allegories and jokes and puns and hidden messages into their texts that we tend not to do well, there was th- a, these days. We were talking about this as well, Peter, because both of us were literary students before we were historians. And and there's a sense in which when you plunder the world of, of literature, that sort of strange abstract bracket that, that divides a historical text from a piece of literature, what you're actually doing is exploring the minds of people who, who lived and worked and engaged creatively. And maps, I find, in a way, the most symbolic of visuals uh, and yet the most practical of visuals. And, and map making itself is a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, the the map we're looking at, the, the Hereford map of Mundi, that's dated to around 1300. And that's one of the earliest medieval Western maps to survive. And actually this idea of conceptualising of the of space from above um, an idea of an aerial view of something is quite recent. And actually, it, it, it's interesting from my point of view, when I think about what I do on medieval, um, in terms of medieval heraldry and things like that, it starts to create these geographical boundaries that have come to define us today. When you can physically show a border or a barrier around a piece of land on a flat object, that changes how people perceive themselves. Suddenly, they are not just bound together by kinship or by tribal identity. They have this physical barrier. So maps are fundamentally important for the modern world, I think, aren't they? Yeah, you know, in the 20, we live in a period in the 21st century where identity, for all sorts of reasons, particularly in, in Europe, but also in large parts of Asia and the Americas and Africa, is up, up for grabs, it, precisely because of this idea of who has set boundaries. Uh, these are entirely notional um, uh, geography separates and connects us depending on our choice. And, you know, I suppose just, just stepping back to what you said at the beginning just now, you know, that part of the problem is that the way we break the world down into regions, we do that intellectually too. We somehow distinguish literature from yeah. theology or from history. And, you know, what I do, I'm interested in, I mean, here, in fact, in my research centre, we have representatives of seven or even eight faculties. I don't know what the difference is between studying theology, history, languages, literature, oriental studies, you know, numismatics, sigillography, lead seals. You know, all of this is about how do you understand the past? And if you, and if, I understand, I mean, I do get why for students, you have to break things down into smaller pieces, because otherwise, you know, it's, it's a sort of bun fight. But, but it seems to me that opening up, uh, reducing those horizons, trying to understand that a river is not necessarily a border between one people and the next. Actually, the most important function of a river is to transport goods along it. Absolutely. So in fact, the people either side of it may be entirely, uh, maybe not irrelevant, but less interesting part of the story. So, ha- ha- But you're exactly right that 
how we see the world, what, what we take as our starting point, how we see connectors, in a way maps are a source of trouble because, yeah. you know, 2000 years ago, for example, there was, huge, you know, incredibly important, we wouldn't call them maps, but the same, same process was served by writers who would explain how did you get from A to B. So yeah. it wasn't that people weren't interested in that. It's just if you're, sitting in a, if you're standing in a city, which road you go on, what comes next, who should you be worried about, that's much more useful to write down than to show in a map, which is, a, which is a bit, you know, it's, it's, a, it's like all pictures, like statues, like sculptures. They are they oversimplify because they, 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 they provide reassurance mm. that actually doesn't reflect any reality on the ground. Because when you see a map, you don't get told where you might get mugged. You don't get told <laughs> where you might get enlightened. You don't get told where you might learn. You don't get told lots of different things. And in a way, that's the bluntness of maps. It's a bit like the difference between TV and a book or even, even a podcast, I guess, in a mm. book. You know, when I have to talk about Silk Road's and give lectures and so on when I have 45 minutes to do that or, or an hour um, you know in a way you think well what, why not just tell someone go and read a book that's 500 pages where you can get the proper detail rather than watering things down and, and simplifying so maps they, they I think we do need to understand them in these ways that they are artistic representations they are snapshots they are they offer incredibly important visual testimony they say a lot about the map maker and his skill but actually what what i mean what what most of us are interested in is is people and their interactions and and static images can't tell you that it's it's interesting with maps though because what you also get a lot of off is the iconography of power and in fact that comes through very strongly in the two that we're looking at particularly right. the constantinople one the iconography of power this idea i mean we could trace it back through romanitas couldn't we if we're talking about the new rome but i remember you, even the earliest maps that i've looked at of constantinople it's always about those big imperial foundations the positioning you know Hagia Sophia, where where these buildings are and and the, the pr processions between them. And in fact, um, the, the text you're talking about, I look at these a lot because pilgrim routes are often described by authors. They'll write, you, you go this way to Jerusalem. This is how yeah. you get there. And they are like verbal maps. They're telling you how to go to a certain place. But it's all about the processions. It's all about the routes. It's about navigating along these, these well-defined pathways that are actually dictated to by the author by the powers yeah. powers that be and you find that in the islamic world with you know pilgrim guides to get getting to mecca you find that mm. in china of course with uh, you know again either either visitations to, to buddhist shrines particularly in things like in dunhuang and the, the mogao caves uh, but you, you find that across all of south asia you know how how you're traveling and how you get from a to b but also why you're doing it mm. what you should do along the way it's not that is, dissimilar to our modern day guides in a way isn't it things you must see along the way we're still prescribed to a lot yeah. of the time when we visit places aren't we yeah and i think that 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 is a sort of difference in a way with the sort of the very blunt um bullheaded western middle ages where literacy levels are, are more or less zero you know the only people who can read are a monks who tend to sort of self-reference and self-copy the obsession and the focus of Jerusalem, of course, totally understand the importance of religion and so on and so forth. But uh, the, those maps and the, 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 the Hereford and the Mappamundi of putting Jerusalem at the centre is mm -hmm. saying something very specific and very powerful, which is what matters is about the holy places. Exactly. What matters about is about your faith and 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 your day-to-day -day lives and where you, where, you know, a map to help you find your way around is less important than understanding that at the centre of the world, at the centre of life is God and the places where Jesus Christ lived, died and rose from the dead. So these, these kind of, the, you know, so, so the map of Mundi, which looks 
astonishing, looks amazing, <laughs> has has parallels all over the rest of the world. And, and in fact, one I was, which is also my introduction, actually, what I was going to, could have chosen, was is a map made in the Turkic world in the 11th century, almost the same time as the Mapamundi, uh, which has a place called Balasagun as the centre point. And Balasagun, uh, I very much doubt many podcast listeners will be able to identify because uh, only about three ex-Soviet archaeologists think they know where it is. You know, it's a place that doesn't that, that is meaningless mm. and yet was the centre of the world for people who looked at that map and would have been understood as as being the centre of the world uh, for that sort of map. And Constantinople, like Baghdad, uh, like uh, you know many places in South Asia, uh, like in like like Xi'an in China, very much felt themselves to be the single most important great city in the world. So I picked one at the sort of western end of the Silk Roads because where where Constantinople was important was its physical location, its connector point uh, with Asia. Because from my point of view, everything that was interesting, the spread of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, religions, money, trade, exchange, art, everything that was interesting happened in in what we call the east until about 1400 maybe 1500 when suddenly europe gets a shot in the arm and as a sort of dig at other podcasts that and podcasters that you've done and will have in the future that was only possible by connecting to the asian trade routes and only made possible because of the materials that allowed this beautiful early renaissance art the gold none of it came from europe exactly. and when you see Fra Angelica, all that wonderful aquamarine uh the vermilion all made from products that had to be bought from from uh, from from Asia. So, Constantinople sits on the edge of where how we should look at Europe. That this the centre part of Europe, the most important part was the eastern side, and it's very recent our our current history of of looking of how we look at how we look at the rise of the West. I think it's very important to note that, and that is something that hangs heavy in my mind constantly as a medievalist. That actually the medieval West was the weaker sibling. It was the the actually quite a backwater and. When you look at Constantinople and the way it has continuity, I'm fascinated in history about breaks and continuity, those those points of junction, you know, when you see one thing end and another begin. And the West is fascinating for that. When you see the break with the with the Anglo-Saxons and then how they return through Christianity to this cradle of, of Christendom, that's all interesting to me. But what I find amazing about Constantinople is actually its continuity and the fact that one space seems to layer up so many different cultural and historical um, points of relevance in a location. And, it, and it's, its geographical location is so important, isn't it? Because you've got the way that it's wrapped around by water. As mm -hmm. you say, the water isn't a barrier. It's actually a conduit, isn't it? That's right. I mean, I think that, that you know, my, my view is that, that one of the keys to understanding um, civilization the correct use of the word, is, is through the cities. Civitas, um, yeah. And, you know, in Europe... Uh, all of Europe, there, there weren't any really great cities. Rome, of course, in its heyday, but you know, cities at the same time when Constantinople had a population of well, perhaps four hundred, perhaps half a million people. The next bigger cities in in places like London, Paris, or became Paris and so on, had populations maybe a tenth of the size, maybe five percent of the size. Mm -hmm. And cities, as in in today's world, as in the world of yesterday, are where uh, levels of exchange are much more rapid. They're much more frequent. Ideas get spread faster, quicker. They get wrapped around. They get they get they get molded. They get shaped, and they advance faster. That's why we have a university where we're all we all live on top of each other uh, because you get a chance to, to talk to each other often. And the more often you talk, the, the better the ideas are going to become. So, so putting people together is key. And, you know, Europe was essentially an agrarian society and city growth didn't really start properly 
until about four or five hundred years ago. Whereas uh, Constantinople, like Damascus or, or Baghdad, at the same a thousand years ago, Baghdad had a population of about a million, probably maybe some people think a bit more, maybe one and a half million. A city called Merv in Turkmenistan um, was bigger than uh, than than Baghdad, probably again magnitude of a million, one and a half million people. It disappeared after it was sacked by the Mongols and absolutely devastated. But the the key to understanding global civilization is to look at cities because they bring people together for a reason. And you've got lots of questions that then spring from that. How do you supply water? How do you bring food? How do you have a, um, how do you provide sewerage? You know, in, in Mahenjadaro in the Indus Valley, uh, the sewage system built in 5000 BC was more sophisticated and worked better than any sewage system anywhere else in Europe until the Victorians cracked it in the 1840s. Yeah, and so I think we, we forget, we sort of think that these people's in Asia somehow are late to the party and they're, they're, they're violent, they're fragile, you know, all the things that we associate in the world of today. Um, but the, the, the key is, is how do these cities fit together? And, and then, as you said, how does power, mm. how, do you, how do you unite? How do you rule a city? How do you rule groups of cities? And how, do you, how does an imperial structure sit on top, whether it's in Safavid Persia, whether it's in the Mughal world of South Asia, whether it's in the Tang or Song dynasty in China or the Ming, or, or with the Byzantine world, but these but these units were unbelievably um, stable. Mm. You know, they they managed to be consistency, and of course, as as we all know, the, the the key to consistency and stability is is first the rule of law, but second to have really first class administrators, mm-hmm. because you can't have a state that functions if you've got corruption. It falls apart, you know, it fractures and, and elites, you know, they, their, their interests are too are, are misaligned with those of the state and therefore it all goes wrong. And when when, you, when I see this map of Constantinople, what I think of is it teach, it, talk, it talks about order, it talks about faith and of course the great cathedral of Hagia Sophia, but it talk, talks about those rituals and um, there are these wonderful sources in the Byzantine world, particularly a book called the Book of Ceremonies. That it's, it's a sort of co- compilation of processions and how did you how should you receive foreign visitors? How should you what should you wear when you do so? When you communicate abroad, how, how do you address? You know what's the ter- what's the form of address to send to the Pope or to the Caliph in Baghdad or in in what became Cairo in the Fatimid world? And that 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 order, mm. that logic, that consistency, that ability to be able to provide, um, you know, teaches us so many lessons that are opposite in the 21st century, where we're living through a time where we talk about division, we talk about de- decoupling big structures, or the EU is too complex to, to work successfully, or our interests in Britain aren't represented by the European Union. That's why, that's why there was a vote, after all, that we should leave. And then how do you collect tax? And this we're talking just after the a spring budget where self-employed uh, you know, have, have suddenly had a massive hit on how they should live and the, the tax they should pay. And these kind of questions, how do you how do you enforce, how do you pass tax laws that are fair? How do you keep a stable currency? How do you how do you deal with people who want to buy things from outside the Byzantine world and to buy fa- fabrics and textiles from from Damascus or from Antioch, where you feel that money's leech, leeching out of the system? This the, the level of law and justice and stability and prosperity and tolerance and administration all go hand in hand and so this is my beacon city mm. constantinople because it's it's easier to understand for most people here in the west than 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 perhaps some of the other cities that we talk about um but you know it, it shows in the in this beautiful beautiful image 
What, what date is order? this, by the way? You haven't, uh, this is nine. Well, so this is put together in 1422 before the uh, the Turkish conquest. And it's, you know, like all things, it, it's slightly idealised because uh, you'll see uh, columns of the, the emperor Constantine. The, um, there were lots of emperors popped up on the top of columns. Yeah. Emperor Martian's column and Emperor Martian and Constantine. And, of course, it doesn't show you any people, mm. uh, which is, of course, important. But you'll see in the, in the northern part of the city in Galata here, the, 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 the Galata tower that's put up by the Genoese to look after their, their, um, their um, this is here, uh -huh, yeah. uh, to protect their commercial interests. Uh, the Golden Horn was incredibly successful in terms of its, its, its fish provision. It was a very well, very rich from, from the sources of the sea. But the approach into Constantinople was understood that it needed to be magnificent. Mm. It needed to shock and awe people when you arrived. And in fact, this map is attached to a description of Constantinople elsewhere in my book by somebody called Paul the Silencery. That's the kind of our first, our first sort of proper description of sort of explaining what what sat where in the city but you find you find russian sources a thousand years ago of russian visitors who come to constantinople saying we've never seen anything like this in our our, our eyes were popping pop out on stalks and when they went into the cathedral of saint sophia mm -hmm. they said we didn't know whether we were in heaven because this is this is what this is what paradise I mean, that one like. building itself Enca encapsulates so much doesn't it in terms of its its own genesis the the way it's moved between different faiths and and now it's ended up as a museum hasn't it but it's this idea in a way that actually the, the city in is in a, is is it made of lots of little microcosms lots of different routes so all of these processional columns they're all memorialising individuals who've left a mark upon it. But so are the buildings. I mean, there's so many remarkable buildings in, in Constantinople, but but particularly in the service of religion, aren't there? Yeah, and, and it's an interesting question about it becoming a museum. Well, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment in, in Turkey that Erdogan wants to uh, recommission Hagia Sophia as a mosque. And, you know, for Christians around the world, and even for those who are, you know, perhaps not, not, not motivated by faith, uh, that seems an incredibly aggressive step to take when there are spectacular mosques around the city too. You know, I, I you know, I think it's very important that cultural uh, monuments are protected and restored and so on. But you know, this 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 church was the biggest Christian church in the world for a thousand years, yeah. and um, it would seem to me in in a world where we should be trying to find better ways of communicating and sharing ideas and sharing tolerances. And you know, I've just come back from from a trip again out, out in Asia where. It's very striking that that you find different flashpoints. Obviously, uh, you know Syria and Iraq, but and Turkey is going through a turbulent phase. But you know a lot of the language I hear in China, Russia, Central Asia, South Asia, is about trying to find ways of better communication and and not being uh, dislocated and 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 set off and uh, by by what your neighbours are doing. And that's very difficult. You know, mm. places like Pakistan and India, you know, very complicated, complex relationship. But in this world that is going through a great deal of change. Uh, you know, we, we can see with the, with the galvanization of what's called the, the new Silk Roads, the One Belt, One Road initiative, that these are not changes that will affect the future. They're, ch they're, they're changes that are affecting the present mm. day. You know, so, uh, you know, just out now in, in Pakistan, there's a port called Gwadar that has been built basically. I mean, it was a small port before. It's been made into a deep water port by Chinese investment in the course of about two years. It's going to be a big enough city to become China's Shanghai in the West. And 
you know, you can't, as you'll know, as a, as a historian, you can't stand in the way of change. You know, when the Goths burst through the, the across the Danube <laughs> and into Europe, and Attila the Hun comes, and yeah. the Mongol invasions or the British Empire being built, you know, there are fundamental reasons for these for changes. And the key question, for my my mind, is is how you adapt and how you anticipate, how you prepare. And you know, as an educator, you know, one of my great regrets uh, uh, here in twenty first century Britain is how static the history curriculum is, yeah. and how the fact that children who are coming out of school age 16 18 or out of university the fact that they can do so without having come across the word constantinople or the ottoman empire or the Safavid world or so on and at further east seems to me at least at the very at the very best maybe naive but possibly highly reckless because that narrowed vision that we had you know it's partly i'm older than you but you know grow as, as a child of the cold war you know understanding the west because that was the beacon of light but that has a very dangerous arrogance that comes oh, with completely. it completely i i think that this idea of uh, even the I, even the word immigrant you know we were we were talking about this before but the idea that you talk about immigrants in a in an island that is entirely inhabited by people that have been pouring over the waters for thousands of years until you understand both the fluidity of people because they move and the fluidity of time because there are these great epochs that change and bend when, until you get a grasp of that a cr- if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Across the world, you really have no right to make decisions on a micro yeah. level. And so I, I do think that there's something really profound about looking at this meeting point. Uh, again, I always think that there are these these excellent 
places where things crystallize. Constantinople is one of the places where they crystallize. But but for me, maps crystallize time, place, attitude in a way that, that very few things do, actually. So, I mean, just if we just take a minute looking at the Hereford one, but um, I mean, this does, for me, represent a map being made in a Christian environment in the 1300s. It's huge, isn't it? It's a metre six. Yeah, it's enormous. D yeah. by a metre 30. And, and actually, everything about this map sums up a view of the world that is entirely off its moment and yeah. off its place. Yeah. It's geographically specific, even though it's purporting to report, to present the whole world. Um, and I, I mean, I, I can see how this map would aggravate you in many ways. No, it doesn't aggravate me. No, on the, I mean, in fact, you know, the, the Chinese word for China, Zhongguo, means the centre of the world. You know, everybody feels that they're the centre of the world. You know, yeah. if you're in Dubai... That is the centre of the world geographically. That is the centre of the world for finance. It's, it's going places and so on and so forth. There, there are all sorts of ways in which everybody will want to see themselves as being central. Absolutely. That, that's absolutely understandable. You know, life begins where you are. And well, Greenwich, we still have the evidence of it today, don't we? The sort of the idea of placing right. the tiny little British Isles right in the heart. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, I'm not it's, I, on the contrary, I don't, don't find it aggravating. I think <laughs> it, it tells you something about the people who made it and the people who, what, what they, when people who looked at it, what they were expected to understand about their place in the world. And and about Jerusalem being at the centre, and I, so I don't. It's not a it's not a value judgment. I think of mm. trying to say they should have looked at things in a different well. And where where's the Malay Peninsula? <laughs> I think it, it it shows you how our our minds and our boundaries, as you say, are at the one time highly limited and limiting, but at the same time they're very expensive. You know, if you if you've seen this uh, seven hundred years ago, your experience of any of these parts of the world would have been absolutely next to zero because yeah. the way that people moved and travelled, if you were elite or if you were attached to an elite. Um, retinue where your lord or master was going to the holy land or whatever then then you would have an idea of of what's what and you'd you'd be very very interested as as today you know if you if you've been to a part of the world no one else has been to people want to hear about it Absolutely, and so yeah. so travel and journeying you know makes us it, it adds to the rich tapestry of life so no i, I don't think it's that, that i think there should be a, a single uniform way mm-hmm. i think where where these maps are interesting is to remind us how very much the world keeps changing, you know. Exactly. And Constantinople was the biggest Christian city in the world until 1453, when it when it fell to the Turks, and you know then then the veil but came down over it. That mm-hmm. the map of Mundi Jerusalem, which was the centre of the world, again, Christianity, the Christian faith, we let go of the Holy Land. You know, thought it either was too hard to fight for, or not really worth it, or was a bit too hot, or <laughs> or, did, or couldn't really hang on to it. So, you know, I, I hear at Oxford, I teach the Crusades, you know, the, the the capture of Jerusalem by the First Crusade in 1099 is one of the greatest military achievements in history. Absolutely. But it didn't last. No. It didn't didn't work. But and, also apocalyptic, when we talk about these, these moments, these seismic moments where things genuinely change, I mean, you've given the date of the fall of Constantinople. That is a seismic moment. That is where boundaries are redrawn. And and I yeah, think although, that... Although, these... although, 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 although we can, you could argue the toss of that too. I mean, in fact, in fact, right now, the kind of cutting edge of... Um, in the academic world, what we tend to want to look at at these points is to play down their significance and mm. to look at continuity. Yeah, absolutely, the fluidity to look, and, and, yeah. to, and to look at how actually you know, these changes of how these big dates are kind of an issue and, and a problem in themselves. And, you know, we know that too because we have to set papers that start in yeah. 1600 and go up to 1800. Or, you know, I've, I've been, I'm doing a project at the moment 
uh, where we've been set three, I mean, I'm, I'm working on, I've been asked to do something about three specific dates and those dates have absolutely no meaning whatsoever. Yeah. It's just simply how we have decided in our decimal Western world to put numbers. But in, in the Islamic world, you date relative <laughs> to the Hijra and the flight of Muhammad to Medina. In the Byzantine world, uh, you know, this, this that we're talking about the year 6,900, you know, so, so dates God, and numbers so you're are writing totally a paper, different. Because this is something that absolutely fascinates me as well. I mean, I, I, I always tell my students about 10 66 you know we talk about seismic change and yeah. admittedly that is a moment of great great transformation on a, on a local level but that dating is one of the things that aggravates me most about about being a historian and working within this discipline because you can say the renaissance took place in florence around the 40th century but in fact you can see the effects culturally yeah. on on a geographical level that is huge and yeah. that spans across hundreds of years either side so the idea that a pinpoint date yeah. makes a difference i mean i think that well what, even 1066 i personally think that there are many more interesting things happening, yeah. not just not just in other parts of the world in 1066. There are more interesting things happening in the Norman world in 1066 <laughs> exactly. than the Battle of Hastings. The Normans in southern Italy and Sicily that essentially shape how the Mediterranean is going to look for three or four hundred years. Uh, what's happening in, in Baghdad where the, there's a new Turkish regime that takes over from the Abbasids and displaces the Seljuk Empire, starts building. You have Song Dynasty China on the move. You have many, many, many more important things happening. But but we but we you know we like comfort. We like labels. We like numbers. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows the date, 1066. But it doesn't cross our mind that you know if you're a child growing up in 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 Shanghai today or in Sao Paulo or in, in Cape Town, this seminal date which means everything to school children all around Britain in 1066, <laughs> means nothing to them. It's extraordinary. And it is a part, it is sort of part of reassessing the very foundations of the discipline. Well, particularly uh, because... when the story is that's the last that the immigrants took over our country. <laughs> so, you know, in fact, it's almost telling the opposite story. If you, if you are sort of in the kind of, you know, Britain needs to go it alone, then, we, then maybe you should play down the fact that uh, whatever it was, you know, nine hundred and seventy years ago, <laughs> the, the French got in and joined exactly. us, up, joined us and connected us into a world that was all to do with Europe and Southern Italy, Sicily, and the Holy Land. But, but, but I think this is coming back to this idea of identity actually being very much bound in with our sense of nationhood, and actually being bound into maps. This is why it's really interesting to talk to you looking at maps, because as I say, when you have no concept of where one boundary begins and another one ends, you you create an identity that is founded on different ideas of yourself sense of self even in the map of mundi what we're seeing is a entirely symbolic almost mythological rendering of the world it's 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 relatively practical you could get around the edges of this map yeah. if you were navigating by sea but otherwise the things that identify it are symbols of weird and wonderful creatures that inhabit the edges of the known world yeah. and then big architectural civitas those cities that sort of link it together um and actually what it shows me is a, is a remarkable fluidity between the now and the imagined the eternal because actually what this is really doing is projecting a sense of of the afterlife as well you know the eternal jerusalem isn't it but but why i like both these maps is that um you have the silence that mm. you have to work quite hard when you look at them and you know the map of mundi working out which way around it should be oriented can you recognize which one is scandinavia what are all these animals you you, you have to work hard mm. uh, likewise with the map of constantinople you've got no particular clue uh, what's unless you know the city well and so on what are all these things you're looking at mm -hmm. and in a way that's sort of it, it's exciting to me I guess as a historian because um, those questions about identity are all based on what historians have said 
in the past and how they saw the world. And in fact, the historians often can be highly misleading because they're doing their best to interpret what they see, but what their sources are, how they are, what their audience is, how they're trying to communicate things. And I mean, I, I definitely see myself for what it's worth and, you know, all of us, uh, this gilded generation of, of, of sparky historians working in Britain today, you know, which you are leading light. You know, there, there are so many, so much exciting work going on at the moment by, 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 by schools of historians here. It's, it's that we are the latest in a long, long line, dating back thousands of years, trying to interpret what we see around us and, and asking why do people want to write about the Templars or about railways in India? Why, why is the Battle of Hastings or Anglo-Saxon literature interesting or significant? What is it about the court of James I or whatever? You know, what topics do we pick? How are we trying to understand this? What, do our, what reference point is there to our own backgrounds, our own, our own uh, roots to writing these things and so on? And, and in a way, having a map removes that silence. I mean, it removes that noise. It makes it a silent exercise because there is no guide. There is no one telling you what happened. Where did Constantinople come from and why did it disappear? Did it change in 1453? How does it look now? How many of these monuments that you can see there are still standing? What happened to the great uh, the great statue of Justinian that was huge on a horse uh, that Pierre Gilles, who, who was visiting the city in the 1500s, you know, makes it his. The, you know, makes it sound like it was absolutely staggeringly yeah, big yeah. and 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 almost grotesquely large. You sort of thing you'd imagine in a real sort of bling world. Somebody who's slightly insecure about. Oh, I think Con I think that Constantine's original city was super bling. I always visualise it slightly as a sort of a Las Vegas where you know you've yes, left but... behind the rotten old, uh, you know infested city of Rome with all its... its oh, well, that's what the Romans <laughs> thought. That, and and that's, that's exactly how we look at Dubai. Yes. That's exactly how we look at Doha. That's exactly how we look at Kuala Lumpur. And you go, well, it's not really a real city. They're quite new. No, and it's, you know, it these, becomes... These whole, huge, ta you know, huge towers and you know, everyone's got the latest kit, but, you know, they don't really have a pedigree. That's how Romans thought and spoke about Absolutely. about Constantinople at the time and you know the truth is that cities like like I said that they come together for a reason there is a fundamental reason why London grows and as a historian you'll know that there are fundamental reasons why cities contract yeah and understanding those rhythms understanding what the ingredients are that make you grow make you make you fall and what should you do if you're if you're the mayor of a city or ruling a city or a governor of a city in terms of what imprint can you make in terms of planning permissions for bigger towers, for the kind of civic architecture, for civic statuary, you know, and uh, you know, we know all those things in 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 England, in London, with the, the Millennium Dome through to uh, the Cheese Grate or whichever whichever skyscraper you want. Cities they move and they grow and they they burst with life for a reason. And one of the things to do is to, is to always remember that that your day in the sun doesn't always last. That's it. And and. It this is why I love the work that you do, Peter, because I think it's very tempting as academics to go further and further into our our specialism, our small little little area that we are the experts on. But it takes courage for historians to actually make broader connections. And I, I mean, I try and do that through art. I, I'm very visually stimulated. But you've taken the even braver step of, of looking at a part of the world that has been very poorly represented in Western history and writing a book that, that tells the story from a different viewpoint. And I think that's, that's really courageous and... and well, that's very generous. I mean, I have to say, I, I do also like the little detailed, you know, bits that, you know, I, in fact, I was talking about it the other day that, you know, the, the one of the things I'm most proud of is redating a document uh, from the late 11th century where moving it 10, 10 years later, which absolutely seems to me, I, you know, I hope I've proved it conclusively, but, you know, that makes such a profound impact on how we understand the Eastern Mediterranean and the Islamic world at a very particular moment. And uh, the truth is that if I tried to publish that as a book or, or talk about it, not many people would come and listen. No. And, and yet, you know, 
you've got to do the two together. You can't, exactly. you need, well, a bit like art. You know, I think hopefully the Silk Road's book, people who, who have a chance to read it, it is, you know, so, sometimes big histories, they're a bit like an impressionist work of art. You can see it from the other side of the gallery and you can see exactly what it is. And then when you get close, it's all a bit vague. You know, there is, it's, it's a bit true about, well, I'm not going to use any examples in case people think I'm scoring points, but you know, it, it, it's true. This is all generalized on the one hand, but actually, you know, is the detail really there? Yeah. I, I think, and I hope that my book is detailed enough that if you are a specialist in, you know, the urbanization of the, of the Netherlands in the 17th century, the detail really is there up close as well. And I think that, that there is a way of changing how we write history, actually, to be able to have access to that level of detail so that the dates and the particular what is the latest thing that's being done in in you know whatever whatever topic you like whether it's uh, sewage systems in Mohenjo-daro through to what is the latest work being done on Persian miniature paintings and how we understand those and I think that there is a way in which really good history can keep that focus and keep that detail but you know I think I've been also very lucky that because no one looks at, at the part of the world I do you know it's it's much easier to introduce people no one's ever heard of and the fact they never heard of them is not it's not their fault because we're too busy learning about Vandal Hastings and or Henry VIII's <laughs> wives and and so introducing people who are unbelievably um, important mathematicians historians writers novelists and so on uh you know it's 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 just shining a, a light on a room that people don't really look at very much and i think you're right i think there's there's the microcosmic and the macrocosmic about what we do isn't there and and yeah i'm the same i think that the tiny little discoveries mean everything and it's getting all those little stones in place the little building blocks upon which you build something greater and then being brave and courageous like you were to write a big history it's risky for academics but it's it it, it does like you say open up new avenues for people in the discipline yeah well like Brodell said you know if, if you don't, we're not going to, if you're not going to be ambitious, what's the point do, yeah. doing what we do? And, you know, we live also, you know, at the moment, we keep being bombarded, being told that STEM subjects are mm. what the future is. You know, it's all about science, engineering, technology, and so on. And, you know, the humanities have an incredibly important place in the system and they, uh, because they explain the world around us. They explain how the past actually looks. And if, if you don't learn not just lessons from history, if you don't learn the right lessons, or worse, if you learn the wrong lessons from history, uh, you know, you are you all set up, you know, in the same way that if a child doesn't realise why it's dangerous to get out of the bath and put their hand into a plug, or why it's dangerous not, you know, to cross the road when the lights are red, uh, you know, to, you've got to learn the right lesson. If the right, the, the right lesson isn't that there was no traffic and therefore last 10 times I crossed the road, I was safe. I didn't need to wait for the lights to cross. You know, so I think that, I think we, we need to be ambitious as mm -hmm. historians. I think that we shouldn't be worried about what people might think of that ambition on the contrary I think that it's all to be encouraged I, I mean, to be fair I, I think everybody who are all my colleagues here whether they are writing on redating documents that's brave as well you know exactly. to go and engage and to say you think that other people have got things wrong well you know writing about horse rearing in Lincolnshire in the 14th century there's still incredibly exciting new ways and new approaches that you can make to the past and I think one of the things we do well in the academic world are, is to be at the cutting edge. Perhaps what we're not so good at doing is explaining to the general public yeah. why that's important and also communicating why why is what we're doing significant and important. And I you know, I happen to be uh, caught the wind caught in the sails of my book uh, in a way that I could never possibly have imagined. But, you know, I, I do think that, that history, literature, visual arts, the kind of things that you do on your podcast, the kind of the, the fact that you're doing this podcast in the first place, you know, it shows how vibrant and how exciting it is that there are so many questions to be asking. And, um, you know, I think it would be great to have a bit more of a shout out 
from from uh, supporters of the podcast, from uh, faculties, from government, to say that there is a real place. You know, humanities isn't just about understanding poetry, sitting under a tree with mm-hmm. a, stroking your beard and thinking <laughs> about beauty. There is a fundamental importance to yeah. our humanity to do this. And societies that don't patronise the arts and humanities, they either they, they both don't get remembered well. But they also, it's a sign of fading. It's a sign of dying when all you're worrying about is tools that help you get richer, which is is part of the point about STEM, rather than understanding um, what is the beauty of, what what are the good things about us as a civilization? What are the risks? What are the dangers? And that requires understanding the past properly. It's it's wonderful. We could talk endlessly, Peter, I know that. And um, there's so many more things we could talk about. We haven't even really pulled apart the maps, but it's the idea of the maps that we've explored. Um, I, I think it's exciting to be able to talk to people like you, to be all the people connected. I'm so grateful that hits, History Hits are behind this podcast because there are brave people out there trying to make connections, start dialogues and, and collect accurate, detailed um, history together so that we can continue to explore and expand the value of the humanities and try and make a difference through it somehow. Yeah, and you know, the good news is there are, these podcasts are listened to by tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people, you know, mm. and that is, I can't tell you how exciting that is. I, can't, mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing to be able to be here in Oxford and talk and know it goes, it can be listened to anywhere in the world. And the fact that people want to listen to it, it shows that there is real Hunger. appetite. So yeah. the, the more that other people who, who are listeners read the more they they tell their friends the more they ask their friends to listen to the podcast or read books and and so on and and also to to pick up some of those ideas about how important it is what we do and uh you know the 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 more support the more visibility and so on the better obviously uh people want to buy my silk roads book so much the better (laughs) but but generally you know history you know the way we look at the past right now is hugely important and and i can tell you in places like russia iran uh, with ISIS even, uh, with Turkey and Erdogan in China, South Asia, history and what history means is not restricted to the, you know academics and people on podcasts. It is absolutely central to modern political debate, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. modern political discussion. And in a way, it does lie under our ideas about Brexit. It is very much pinned the Brexit debate about what British history meant in the 19th, 20th century. What did our empire once mean? How have we been reduced to the states where we, you know, funding people in Brussels rather than looking after ourselves? That the past is absolutely central. And, uh, you know, this period of transition, it's never been more important than to understand that and to be asking interesting and good questions about other parts of the world where we expect our children to grow up and understand globalization. Yeah, we ignore the past in our peril at the moment, particularly. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. You can subscribe to the podcast by going to historyhit.com slash artdetective. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dr. Yanina Ramirez. Peter, you're on Twitter too, aren't you? What's... Just as Peter Frankopan, yep. Yeah. Um, wonderful. I'm sure this will be the start of many, actually, because we've still got so much to discuss and there's still so much work to be done. But for the time being, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. 
quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.